When I was growing up in Minnesota, our family Christmas celebration was idyllic in many ways. You see, in Minnesota, for the vast majority of years, we had a white Christmas in which the snow lay softly on the branches of the trees and lined the streets. On Christmas Eve, my parents would extend an invitation to my grandparents who would come and join us to go to church and celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus and then come back to our house for a nice meal and some games to follow. Warmth and laughter were present. On Christmas Day, my parents extended another invitation to my extended family. Aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins would all come over for a big meal in the afternoon and have an evening together. And seven boy cousins who were all right around the same age would spend the afternoon outside in the frozen pond in the back, ice skating and playing hockey. While the dads, the uncles, all sat by the fire and talked and napped and napped and talked (laughs) and there was food in there somewhere while the women sipped on coffee and exchanged stories of the past number of months that had gone by fond memories i wonder if you have received an invitation this christmas christmas is a time of invitation It's a time to spend with family and friends. And many of you have already invited family, friends, or loved ones to spend Christmas Eve or Christmas Day with you. Or perhaps, maybe others of you have received those types of invitations to spend time and to go to be with them. Because to be close with the people that you love during significant times like that is important. And often an invitation is what is required to do so. This morning, we continue in our Christmas series in the Psalms called The Christmas King. And we're looking at different Psalms that point to the coming of the Lord Jesus in anticipation of Christmas and his kingship that is displayed therein. And this morning, I want to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, we'll have it on the screen behind me, but you can also find it on page 458 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And in some ways, this psalm is a psalm of invitation. Psalm 24 is believed to be a psalm of corporate worship that commemorates the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You can almost picture, as you read it aloud or as we read it in just a moment, you can picture the people all gathered in celebration and worship, in a call and response type of interaction. The ark is being carried in almost a parade-like sense. The choir is singing. The song leader is shouting out, and the people are responding in rejoicing. And it is all culminating in a celebration of the magnificence of God himself. Further, it is a celebration of the coming of a Savior, a Savior that will come someday who we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And it points us to the fact that he will be the one to take up the very throne of David. 
And so in this sense, Psalm 24 is a psalm that helps us to anticipate. It helps us to prepare for Christ at Christmas. So follow with me as we read it together. This is what it says. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The psalm starts out with a tremendous claim about the nature of God. He owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he writes. That means that every animate and inanimate object belongs to him. From the peaks of the highest mountains to the visions of the deep valleys beneath them, they all belong to God. From the central jungles of South America to to the place where people dare not go, but only animals and insects and vegetation inhabit in that thick, damp air, and nothing but the sound of the wild exists. To the Mariana Trench, the deepest trench in the deepest part of the ocean, its depth measures 36,036 feet. That makes the depth of this trench of the ocean deeper below the surface than Mount Everest is high above the surface. All the way down there where no light dare to reach and only microorganisms survive under the immense pressure. From the plains of Asia to the ice formations of Antarctica to the clouds in the sky to the subsoil of the very ground that this building sits on today. And at the center of it, even in the center of your own home, way back in the far corner of your closet, where the dust is settled over those things you forgot that you had because they had been there for so long. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything. And the psalmist takes the claim 
even a step further because not only does God own everything, but he also owns everyone. The world, he writes, and all of those who inhabit it. From the smallest cells to the largest creatures, bacteria, viruses, microorganisms, insects, reptiles, mammals, preborn babies in the wombs of their mother, all the way to those who are at the end of their days. They all belong to God. And on what basis is this claim made? You should ask. Verse 2 tells us that he created it, therefore he owns it. He founded the earth upon the seas and established it on the rivers. That is why, friends, the debate about how the world was formed is so important. The debate about the origins of life and the origins of earth is not just a debate about the mechanics of formation or creation. It is a debate about who rules the world. And here the psalmist makes it abundantly clear that all of it, And everyone in it belongs to God. And if all of God's creation belongs to God, then that means that you belong to God as well. Think about God's creation and the amazing aspects of it for just a minute. A Bengal tiger has an average weight of 300 to 500 pounds and yet can still jump up to 33 feet in the air. That's amazing. And God created it. A sea turtle can hold its breath for four to seven hours on average, but when resting on the sea floor, can stay underwater for days. And God created it. The bird that flies the highest among all is called Rupel's griffin vulture. And it has been seen at 37,000 feet above sea level. For context, that elevation is higher than many of the domestic flights that go across North America. And God created that bird. The human's brain storage capacity is considered virtually unlimited. Research suggests that the human brain consists of 86 billion neurons. Each neuron forms connections to other neurons, which could add up to one quadrillion connections. And over time, some of these neurons combine, increasing the storage capacity of your brain even more. Brain information travels at an impressive rate of up to 268 miles an hour. One piece of brain tissue the size of the grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons and a billion synapses. And all of this happens in an organ that weighs just three pounds. And God created it all. And all of it belongs to him. The creative power of the Lord makes him the king over his creation. It makes him the one who rules. And the second stanza of the psalm asks the question, how can we have an audience with this king? 
Because in the kingdoms of the world, not just anyone can have an audience with the king. Certain criteria need to be met, certain standards maintained and enforced, even more so when you are dealing with the king over all of the world. And so the psalmist asked the question in verse 3, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? And the answer that he gives is found in verses 4 through 6. Look at it with me. He says, he who has a clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Clean hands. Clean hands are required to come into the audience of the king. But that expression of clean hands is not just an expression of outward cleanliness, of washing away of the dirt on your body. It is an expression that's meant to communicate a righteous way of life. Doing the right things at the right time, in the right way as you go through life. Obedience, you might say. But even that is not enough. For the one who ascends to the hill of Zion, righteous living and outward actions is not enough. You must also have a pure heart, clean hands, and a pure heart. The soul of a person must be clean to stand before this king. An outward righteousness of obedience and inward righteousness in our souls. This is further described, he says, as not lifting up your soul to what is false by worshiping false idols or foreign gods and not swearing deceitfully to your neighbor. You might say it this way. You need to love God with a pure soul and love your neighbor with clean hands. This is the summary of the law and the prophets, Jesus says. This is the one who can ascend the holy hill. This is the one who can enter the holy place. And verse 5a says that this is the one who will receive blessing from the king of all creation. But who can possibly be completely obedient in their actions and be completely pure in their soul. Verse five helps us. It says that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. He will receive two things. He will receive blessing and he will receive righteousness. The person who has clean hands and a pure heart, still needs to actually receive righteousness. At first blush, you might read that and you might think that 
Psalm 24 is teaching that we can enter into God's audience through our good works. If we are clean enough of our own volition, if we are pure enough in our own soul, we need to be good enough to ascend the holy hill. But when you look more closely, you see that this isn't the case because God recognizes that nobody comes to him completely clean. They need to be justified or still given righteousness in order to enter. And so that phrase, righteousness, he's given righteousness, is often translated as vindication or justification. This is a psalm that points to the idea that we are justified before God through faith. And he says that the one who comes into the court of the king must receive righteousness from the God of their salvation. God is the one who gives it. God is the one who saves them. God is the one, even in the midst of all of their good efforts, which are indeed good, but not good enough. He is the one because of his deep, deep love for his people gives them the righteousness for the ones who have faith in him so they can stand in his presence. We need a savior to climb the hill. (laughs) We need a savior to stand before the king. Fleming Rutledge writes that sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. And a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip illustrates the point rather well. I wonder how many of you remember Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know what the age limit is for Calvin and Hobbes. It's probably like 40, probably. Does anybody under 40 remember Calvin and Hobbes? We have a really strong witness in the back and in the front. That says that, says that you were parented well. I just, I just want you to know. Um, so the story, of course, of Calvin and Hobbes Um, is always wildly improbable. But Calvin is a little boy who is hurling down a snowy slope on a sled with his friends Hobbes, who's a tiger. And they're conducting a discussion about sin. And here's the dialogue. Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good? And he replies, Well, that's just the question. It's all relative. I mean, what's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I mean, I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say that I should get lots of presents? And Hobbes replies, maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. The one who approaches God needs righteousness to be given to them. And now you begin to see the anticipation of the Savior who comes at Christmas. Because the same holds true today. The only way to approach the holy God is by an outward obedience and an inward purity of the soul. And the only way that requirement can be met 
is through justification by faith, through a righteousness that is given to you as you believe in God who is our salvation. And we know that this is why Jesus Christ himself came, to make righteous the ones who believed in him. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 summarizes it well. It says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Spurgeon once wrote that it's possible as you read this psalm that you are saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill, He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, say you? The spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit and has all of the virtues wrapped up in it. The final stanza gives us the picture of a triumphal entry. Think about it with me and try to envision it if you can. The Ark of the Covenant is being marched in. All of God's people have surrounded. The choir would sing and the people would shout in a call and response and a praise and glory to God. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Someone shouts. The Lord, strong and mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. David has asserted that the God is the owner and the ruler and the king over all of his creation. He's told us how we can gain access to the king's audience on the holy hill. And now is the call to throw open the gates as the king assumes his glorious position. You know, in the ancient world, when the king returned to the kingdom from a far off land or a battle, the scouts would stand, look out on the wall for incoming traffic. They would see those approaching from a great distance as the horses kicked up the dust while they ran. And as the horsemen of the king approached, flags lifted high, the scout would know that the king himself was coming. Word spread through the kingdom quickly. The people would begin to gather and to line the streets And as the riders of the party drew near, you would hear one voice yell among the rest, open the gates! And the king would enter. 
all of his splendor. And his people would applaud the return of their ruler and master. And as he marched in, the spoils of war were set before them, jewels from far off lands, the finest of fabrics, the captured animals, the exotic food, and perhaps even the court of the king that had been conquered. Majesty and power and glory of the king were on display for everyone to celebrate. Songs preceded him. Wonder and awe and imagination filled the minds of his great, of his great people with regard to the victories that he had just obtained. And all who witnessed it made his accomplishments known. And here the picture is similar. The description of the victorious king, Psalm 24, that led a whole host of soldiers. The calling of his great might in battle and the cry. Open the gates. The king has come. And another shouts, who is the king of glory? And the crowd erupts. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And the call goes out again. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts is the reply. He is the king of glory. God's glory is the manifestation of his presence that can be described as the thing that makes him beautiful and attractive and magnificent. And it's even more than that because those things are combined with his awesome power and his severity and his perfect nature or his holiness. And his glory is shown for all who would be near to him. This is the God who reigns over all. And the thrust of the whole psalm becomes very clear at its climax. The Lord over all creation is the king of all glory. The Lord over all creation is the king of all glory. And the opportunity that this king gives to his followers is found in the form of an invitation. You see, this is a psalm of David and it points to the greatness of God as the king of the world. He's the king of glory. And as history unfolds, we see that the scripture tells us that God's anointed king is one who also comes in glory and his name is king jesus he is the christmas king and he is the king forevermore and all of the criteria that are mentioned in psalm 24 are criteria that jesus himself meets because Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 tells us that just as God the Father was involved in creation and therefore owns creation and is the king over all creation, so too his son Jesus was appointed king for his participation in creation. It says this, For by him, by him, Jesus, all things were created, 
in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And if that's true, then he too is the owner and the ruler of all things. The Lord over all creation is the king over all glory. And when we ask the question, who can climb the mountain of God? Who can stand in the holy place? There's only one who came with completely clean hands and a perfectly pure heart, the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5 says in him there was no sin. Not only is Jesus the creating king, he is the one who can enter the holy place. And because he can enter the holy place, he has righteousness to give to those who follow him. He justifies them because of their faith before his father. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And not only that, but you can imagine Try to picture it with me if you can. Even close your eyes if you dare to imagine the throne room of heaven as the Lord Jesus himself has accomplished his mission. He lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death to pay the penalty for sin. Having risen from the dead, he guarantees eternal salvation and now he has ascended into heaven to the very throne room of God himself. And as he enters, all of the heavenly host enter into their praise and a call and response. And among them, someone yells the question, who is the king of glory? And they all reply in unison, the Lord Jesus, he is the king of glory. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter one, that the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. The Lord over all of creation is the Lord of all glory. The Lord over all creation is the Lord of all Glory, And just as the psalmist tells us that God the Father enters with an invitation and a command, so too does his son. Verse 6, the psalm, such is the generation of those who seek him. Seek the face of the God of Jacob. That's an invitation. 
Verse seven and verse nine. Lift up your heads that the king of glory may come in. And likewise, Jesus invites you to come. He invites you, come to me. All who labor are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He invites you to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He invites, abide in me and I in you. Because the Lord of all creation is the king of all glory and he welcomes you to come to him through faith and receive all of the benefits of being in proximity to the king. You know, every year we sing songs at Christmas point to the kingship of Jesus. Sometimes we don't even recognize what we're singing. And so I close this morning with one that's very common to us all. Consider the words of this common Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are by John Henry Hopkins Jr. It says, I think in verse two, born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him God most high. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia. Earth to heaven replies. Star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding. Guide us to thy perfect light. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that the Lord of all creation is also the Lord of glory. We thank you that this majesty, power, and might is owned by you. And we thank you, God, that you have raised up your son, the Lord Jesus eternally existent to be our king as well. As we anticipate Christmas, as we celebrate his coming this year again, help us to see and to know and to feel with great joy that the king has come. In his mighty name we pray, amen.